What's good, everybody? I'm Dion Rabowin for The Wall Street Journal, and this is WSJ's Take on the Week, the show where we break down the most important things to watch in business and financial news. We cut through the noise to get you ready for what matters. You could have been anywhere in the world, but you're here with me, and I appreciate that. The stock market went on a winning streak to close out 2023, with the S&P 500 rising for nine weeks in a row. That rally reflected growing optimism that the Federal Reserve could vanquish high inflation without upending the economy. The market's exuberance came to a halt last week when the S&P's winning streak was snapped. This week will bring even more questions, and we are going to learn a lot about the state of American consumers and businesses. The latest report on U.S. consumer credit is scheduled to drop on Monday. The National Federation of Independent Business is set to publish its Small Business Optimism Index on Tuesday. And we're expecting the latest numbers on inflation from the Consumer Price Index on Thursday. That all leads up to the unofficial start of earnings season on Friday, when Bank of America, Wells Fargo, and J.P. Morgan Chase are set to report. The U.S. banking giants will take us under the hood to tell us what consumers were buying, how their balance sheets looked, and whether the pickup we've seen in credit card defaults and delinquencies has reached a level that's got them worried. But before we get into that, let's talk about small business. On Thursday, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce will host its annual State of American Business event. I would bet that the CEOs of big public companies are feeling pretty good right now. The S&P 500 finished 2023 nearly 25% higher than where it started the year. Companies like NVIDIA, Meta, and Royal Caribbean saw their stock prices rise by more than 150%. And 11 public companies, valued at over a billion dollars, boasted gains of more than 100%. But what about the small companies, the ones that drive almost half of U.S. economic activity? With higher interest rates pushing up the cost of borrowing money and inflation increasing the cost of labor, materials, and just about everything else, they've been struggling. The NFIB survey has shown small business optimism below its 50-year average for 23 straight months. So I wanted to talk to someone who has a front-row seat to the trials and tribulations of small businesses. Arlen Hamilton is the founder and managing partner at venture capital firm Backstage Capital. VC firms invest in small companies that are hoping to grow and help them in exchange for a share of their future profits. So they're invested both literally and figuratively. Venture Capital had a rough year, with VC fundraising and fund distributions both falling to the lowest levels in about a decade, according to data from PitchBook. Arlen's path to becoming a venture capitalist was far from the usual one. She joins me now to talk about how she got here and what she's seeing from the small businesses she works with and invests in. That includes artificial intelligence startup Cloud9AI, digital news and insights platform The Plug, and Gooder, a platform leveraging technology to fight food insecurity. So, Arlen, we've seen that investors were very excited about the stock market and about large public companies coming into 2024. As someone who invests in smaller companies, right, are you feeling that same excitement right now? I am. I'm definitely feeling that. But to be honest, I feel that every year because mm, of okay. who I'm investing in. Okay, so are you more or less excited than you are on the excitometer? I'm definitely optimistic about 2024, and I have been for a few months. It's been a, a rough couple of years, obviously, and uh, I think we're due for, for something on the horizon. Mm, okay. Do you have an idea of what that something on the horizon is? Um, so I don't keep up with trends. It's kind of something that I'm known for. But I tend to see around corners and 
I'm excited about the fact that so many people, especially people who are underestimated, are going to have even more autonomy in 2024. The last three or four years kind of just threw us all for a loop. And I think that in finding our footing, we're realizing that we can't be beholden to any one income stream or one way of doing things. And so there's a lot of entrepreneurship that sprung up from that. And so I just see not only those entrepreneurs building things, but they're going to be building things for other people to have their own freedoms as well. What did 2023 look like for Arlen Hamilton and Backstage Capital? Well, for us, because we invest in companies that are led by women, people of color, and LGBTQ plus founders, we're always working with people who have been exposed to fewer resources. And so it didn't rock the boat for us so much because we're always in rocky boats. Mm. (laughs) Um, And then Backstage itself has always been an independent, brick-by-brick, building this $100,000, $25,000, $500,000 at a time, building millions over time, investing in 200-plus companies, but very independent, like an entrepreneur itself. So um, 2023... I didn't find it personally as shaky as most people seem to have because that was my 2022. I built Backstage while I was homeless, and then we slowly started bringing people on board. And in 2021, when we did have that boom year, we raised, I think, $6.5 million from the crowd at a groundbreaking raise, which was really awesome. It helped us with a lot of debt. It helped us with a lot of operational costs. Um, and then the expenses to, to do it itself. And it was it's really great because we have thousands of people now who are average investors who are now um, stakeholders in Backstage Capital. But money is fleeting. And after two or three years, that runs out and the same problems come back up. And so I have always been playing this balancing act of being the person who's investing in other people, but having to find that capital and not having it already, you know, most venture funds, they have a system, they have limited partners who come in and and it, it can take a few months to raise $100 million, $300 million, but it, it's inevitable that it'll happen. With Backstage, because of how it started and because of what we're doing and who I am, it's just, it's never been easy. And when you're building something so different and groundbreaking, it's going to look different. We're going to take a quick break to pay some bills, but we'll be right back with the second half of our interview with Arlen Hamilton, founder and managing partner at Backstage Capital. Robert Half Research indicates nine out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. Robert Half is here to help. Our recruiting professionals utilize our proprietary AI to connect businesses with highly skilled talent. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. We are back. I'm talking to Backstage Capital founder and managing partner Arlen Hamilton. You may have noticed that Arlen said she started backstage when she was homeless. For those who don't know Arlen's story, in her new book, Your First Million, she talks about how she started Backstage's first fund while sleeping on the floor of the San Francisco airport. Today, Arlen says the firm has invested in hundreds of companies and has around $25 million of assets under management. 
Arlen, you've got a very unique perspective. Not only are you a business owner yourself and someone who's founding and starting and creating, you're also investing in these companies. So you get a unique view of what the economy looks like. What does the economy look like right now from your perspective? As a human on this planet, uh, it does seem scary. It does seem like we need to brace ourselves for something. I think that we've been in this like uh, fight or flight for a while because a recession has been looming for so long. And it's, are we there? Did we ever get there? Did the government help us avoid it and we didn't even notice? All of that. So I think that my optimism is also tempered, or I should say affected, by my delusion. <laughs> mm. It's like a purposeful delusion that I have. A purposeful delusion. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think a, a lot of my favorite entrepreneurs have it, even if they don't know they have it. Mm -hmm. You have to be a little bit delusional. So when I see the optimism in the economy, it's not based on what's happening. It's based on what I believe will happen. Mm. So let me, let me ask you about that, though. You said it's not based on what's happening. What is happening that's not giving you that optimism? I speak to, I want to say, hundreds of entrepreneurs every month directly. And, and I know it is harder for people to make ends meet than it was two years ago. So just on you know, Main Street, it's harder for people. And so I think that's what's happening. That's what's scary. Things seem more expensive. Things seem more out of reach. Do you feel like that sense of people are feeling less secure? Is that affecting the kind of things that are being pitched to you or the way you're being pitched in terms of businesses? I think people are probably still six months in the past when they're, whenever they're doing something. What they're focused on I've seen is more about like we are very fiscally responsible. We are not those tech bros who are looking to raise $20 million on a $100 million valuation without revenue. They're more speaking to how great of a founder and responsible they are because we had such a boom and a, a bubble in 2021. And so you're trying to be the anti that. And I think that three to six months from now is when you'll start to see that creativity actually come out rather than sort of hedging your bets. Interesting. And do you feel like that's uh, that's a good thing? Is that something you're like, okay, that's the key? Or is that maybe when we start to get out in front of our skis a bit? I think it's wonderful that people are like, hey, maybe I should um, generate revenue before I go out and that say that nice. my company's worth $100 million. It's really good. And, and by the way, it's not uh, women, people of color, et cetera, who are saying that their company's worth $100 million during the boom. I do think that's really good that we're all kind of coming to our senses collectively in the venture space. But like I said, I think we're always six months behind or so. So maybe in six months, we will forget the pain of 2021 and make the same mistakes again. And it'll be this continuous cycle. And I actually predicted this 2020-2021 boom in 20, I want to say 2016 and 2017, I said it on camera at an event that there was going to be this um, explosion of opportunity for black founders specifically. And at the time, no one was checking for black founders. So it was sounded crazy in the room. And I said, 
as quickly as it happens, it'll be taken away from us. So collect for a rainy day, but do not spend. Hold when it happens so that you can be ready and prepared for the rainy day. It happened. I think that's going to happen again. I think, uh, let's call it six to 12 months, we'll be on the up on the upswing. We'll see. You know, I might be proven wrong. And then fairly soon after that. I think that said another way that the boom and bust periods are just happening faster. They keep happening. They're going to happen, but they're just happening at a faster clip. Last question I want to ask you is what's something happening in business right now with the companies you talk to that you work with that you yourself are seeing that most people aren't talking about or aren't talking about enough or just aren't seeing? I've definitely had conversations if we think about what's next for Backstage. It's not just investing in the same types of companies that we always have or just replicating that o- that model over and over again. It's more about those, those moonshot ideas, those moonshot companies. And I have, in recent months, met with so many, in the last, I would say, year, met with so many brilliant founders, underestimated is what we call them, who are building things that would make Elon Musk look over their shoulder and say, how are they doing that? You know, I I think they're um, redefining the word genius. And we are the audience to that. and And I have the best seat in the house. That was Arlen Hamilton, founder and managing partner of Backstage Capital. Arlen says her new goal is to make 1,000 new millionaires. Up next, investors are wondering if J.P. Morgan made $50 billion in revenue last quarter. We'll talk about what the bank's big returns last year could mean for the banking sector and the economy at large. Join the Wall Street Journal at the Future of Everything Festival on May 21st to 23rd in New York City, where diverse global newsmakers share unique perspectives on navigating a changing world. Immerse yourself in live performances, explore pioneering technologies, and indulge in the city's inventive culinary scene. As a podcast listener, enjoy 20% off current ticket rates with code PODCAST. Visit wsj.com slash f-o-e-f podcast to secure your spot. One more thing before we get out of here. I want to talk about the big banks. The three largest in the country, J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, and Wells Fargo, are all scheduled to report their earnings on Friday. Those earnings reports will give us important details about the state of the American consumer, the engine that powered the U.S. economy to grow at a rate that's expected to be six times higher than what the Fed predicted at the beginning of 2023. Banks know how much Americans are keeping in their savings accounts. They know how much we're putting on our credit cards, and they know what our account balances look like. The big banks were also a somewhat surprising winner of the Fed's rate hiking cycle. My colleague Rachel Ensign covers banking for the journal, and we talked about why this week's earnings reports from the banks will play a big role in deciding whether the stock market maintains the momentum we saw at the end of 2023. Any sign that there actually are some cracks in the economy would be of concern. 
banks saying our loss rates are going up on cards, on other products, that would definitely be a concern because you know, that hasn't happened in a big way yet. One thing folks will really be looking for is a projection of what did these next anticipated Fed moves mean for the bank's balance sheets? Because the really rapid rate rise was kind of a mixed bag. But at the end of the day, there were a lot of banks like J.B. Morgan that were able to make huge sums of additional profit because rates were rising. And when rates start to fall, what does that mean? This week's earnings reports will also tell us about the value of size. J.P. Morgan was the outperformer among the banks last year. Not only did its share price rise more than an index of banking stocks, it beat the S&P 500, delivering a return of more than 25%. Perhaps one big reason was that J.P. Morgan, already the biggest bank in the U.S., got even bigger. When it purchased First Republic in March, lawmakers allowed it to bypass a federal regulation that bars banks from making deals that give them more than 10% of all U.S. deposits. J.P. Morgan had $2 trillion in deposits and $3.7 trillion in assets when they acquired First Republic. That deal added another $92 billion in deposits and $200 billion in assets. Here's what Rachel had to say about the growing consolidation in the banking sector. So even though we had the financial crisis, which led a lot of people to be concerned about the size of the biggest banks, what really happened after was that the biggest banks, without really doing any kind of deals, got way, way bigger. So basically, you have these big banks that have gotten a lot bigger, and pretty much everyone beneath them is facing these existential questions of, what do we do? How do we thrive? Where do we fit in in this world where J.P. Morgan is growing at this extremely fast pace? Understanding what's happening at the big banks means understanding the U.S. economy. But it may be even more important than ever to watch the biggest bank, J.P. Morgan Chase. And that's everything you need to know to take on the week for Sunday, January 7th. The show is produced by Jess Jupiter, Jonathan Sanders is our booking producer, Michael Laval and Jessica Fenton are our sound designers, Michael also wrote our theme music, Aisha Al-Muslim is our development producer, Scott Salloway and Chris Zinsley are the deputy editors, and Falana Patterson is the head of news audio for The Wall Street Journal. For even more, head to WSJ.com. I'm Dion Rabone. Stay smart.